0: More than 3,500 times each year, often in the worst moments of their lives, people come into Allen Superior Court seeking an order of protection, more commonly known as a protective order. The Indiana Civil Protection Act provides options for individuals alleging that they or their children are in danger of being harmed by someone in their life. People alleging that they have been victims of domestic or family violence, a sex offense, stalking, harassment, or child grooming are able to seek orders of protection through the court. I'm John McGauley and today on In Session, I'm talking to Allen Superior Court Magistrate Michael Douglas and Rosie Peppel, Superior Court's Protection Order Specialist, about the protection order process and the resources available to those seeking help. Magistrate Douglas, Rosie, welcome to In Session. Thank you. Thank you, John. Good to be here. For Magistrate Douglas, the most important question I suspect we can answer here today is a two-parter, so let's just jump right in. What exactly does a protection order accomplish, and when can somebody seek one? John those are great questions and
1: going to your first one what exactly does a protective order accomplish it it is designed to accomplish or to stop domestic or family violence a sex offense stalking child grooming or harassment from continuing to occur and realistically what that means is is that when people come into the court asking for a protective order something has already happened to them first, and then the idea behind it is is that these laws are designed and the protective order is designed to potentially and, and hopefully stop those things from continuing to happen to that actual person. And then when can someone seek a protective order? Uh, You reference it in your opening there. Number one, domestic or family violence, which can be between spouses, between ex-spouses, between significant others, between family members, whether it be blood or adoption, a sex offense, which can be a whole host of things, Uh, stalking, harassment, or child grooming. And Child grooming is a relatively new option that has to deal with an individual grooming or trying to entice
0: a child to engage in some sort of um, illicit or sexual behavior. I think there's a misconception out there that a protective order is a quick fix to any dispute, argument, or conflict, you know, you don't like your next-door neighbor, they, they talk smack on the driveway, you can rush in here and get a protective order. What kinds of situations do you see in court for which a protective order is not the solution?
1: that example is can be one where someone exchanges words, two neighbors exchange words, uh, maybe cuss at each other, maybe yell at each other. And in that particular scenario that would not warrant a protective order because no one's being intimidating, no one's being threatening, no one's being fearful for their physical safety. And so we see that a lot where people come in, they're requesting a protective order because someone is saying nasty or hurtful things to them, which can be uncivil and unreasonable and, and shouldn't necessarily be said but just being uncivil towards someone or not nice does not equate and does not equal a protective order the thing that we like to try to stress is being uncivil or unreasonable it may hurt your feelings and you may not like it and society may not like that but at the end of the day your safety is not at risk and that's really what a protective order is designed to do is protect your physical safety not necessarily your personal feelings some other issues some other situations i should say that we see in court that a protective order is not a solution I mean, there's a handful of them but the ones that come to mind first parenting time and custody issues between parents and their children we see often where a parent will come in and ask for a protective order on behalf of the minor child because again you can only request one protective order for one person you can't do groups, you can't lump people together and ask for a mass protective order. It doesn't work that way. So one protective order for one person. So if a parent comes in asking for a protective order on behalf of their child, a lot of times we see, well, well I don't want my child to go over to mom or dad because I don't agree with how mom or dad are living their life. For example, drug abuse, alcoholism, the new significant other, new boyfriend, new girlfriend, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, and the one parent asking for the protective order on behalf of the child just i I don't feel comfortable with my child going over there that is a family law issue those are very valid concerns very important issues that need to be fleshed out or, or examined further but those are issues dealing with what's called the best interest of the child and there's a whole host of things that go into that legally but that's a family law issue that we typically tell that petitioner or that person that parent those are valid concerns they're just not protective order concerns unless there's domestic or family violence a sex offense one of the ways that you can actually get a protective order. So we refer them generally over to the family law case to litigate that issue. The other one we see often is where someone will come in on behalf of another adult, for example, a parent, a grandparent, a cousin, a friend and when you're filing for a protective order you have to have some legal connection meaning you have to actually be a blood or adoptive parent or you have to have a guardianship over that other person and without those you don't have what's called legal standing or the fact is you just can't do it i mean you can apply we're not going to stop you from filling out the paperwork but when you come up to see one of the judicial officers we will tell you you legally can't file this without one of those designations and so those are two of the, the highlighted areas of uh, what other situations we see that are not a protective order situation.
0: For both of you, let's, let's talk about the process for a moment. Where do people go in order to file for a protective order and it does it cost anything?
2: There is no cost to file. Uh, Petitioners are able to file in person here at the One West Superior address. They can file electronically or with an advocate agency like YWCA, Center for Nonviolence, or Amani Family Services, which also provide a variety of interpreters.
0: Can somebody file for protective order online? Yes, they can.
2: Um, they can file electronically through the uh, protective order website and they just have to create an account in order to do that, wait for their password, and then they can get in and submit a petition electronically. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think we've got all those linked to our website, mm-hmm. court. slash protective orders. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe for Magistrate Douglas, talk about the hearing process. When will somebody get into court after they've filed for protective order and when do they find out if it's been granted?
1: So there's two types of hearings. One, an ex parte or what's called an emergency protective order request. Ex parte is where the court is hearing from the petitioner only. We're not hearing from the other side at this time. The other one is, is if there's an actual final protective order trial. I'll start with the ex parte. So if a person comes in, as Rosie says, they file their petition, whether it be online or in person with Rosie, and I'll just give a plug for Rosie, she's doing a great job as our Allen Superior Court Protective Order Specialist. So she sees every single protective order that walks into the building, and she also reviews and helps with people filing things online as well. So everything comes through her. If you're in person, you come in, you file your request, then you are immediately sent up to when i say sent up Mm -hmm. our courthouse is two stories so you're you're told to come upstairs and that's where the judicial courtrooms are at then one of the three magistrates such as myself magistrate cook or magistrate Beatty, will then bring that petitioner in or that person requesting the protective order into our courtroom and review their petition. And then we will review what they've written. And then if we have additional questions, we will ask them to further clarify their allegations against the respondent or against the other party. And then if the court believes that there's enough information in their request for domestic or family violence, sex offense, stalking, harassment, child grooming, then the court can issue an emergency protective order for four of those things we cannot issue an an emergency protective order for harassment we have to set those for a hearing if the court feels that there's enough evidence to potentially support harassment we set those cases for a hearing we're not able to to grant those immediately but for the other reasons the court can give you your protective order right then and there and then as the petitioner as the person requesting it you're going to sit out in the lobby and then our court reporter will prepare the actual protective order, and you're going to get that copy before you leave the courthouse. The other way is if there's actual trial, because the court can always just set things for a trial. So if you come in as a petitioner and you're asking for a protective order for whichever way you think you can get one, and the court says, well, let's just set this for a trial, bring the other side in, and then have the hearing, um, that's the other way. And then if that's the way that the court's trying to determine whether or not a protective order will be granted or not. The court can issue it at that time right after the hearing. The court believes that there's more likely than not domestic violence and so on has occurred or not, or the court can take it under advisement which means we're not making a decision right that moment, but we will make a decision within the next 90 days.
0: And the whole process takes place at the courthouse annex, 1 West Superior Street, downtown Fort Wayne, just a couple of blocks north of courthouse and the Russo Center that most folks are probably pretty familiar with.
2: Correct, unless it's transferred, Mm -hmm. but they will get notification when they come in person or by mail. If it is transferred, then they know to go over to Mm -hmm. the big courthouse, which is family court, and then have their hearing over there.
1: So when a case is transferred, for, like Rosie just mentioned, if the parties have another pending case, such as a divorce case that's pending uh, or a juvenile paternity case or what's also known as a JP case, that's where two parties have children or a child together that are not married, if they have a pending case family law case whether it be juvenile paternity or divorce the court has to transfer the protective order trial itself to that open case Mm -hmm. so as rosie mentioned it'll start out here at the address you provided john and then if there's an open case whether it be in this county or another county or another state Mm -hmm. we've had them sent to california to alaska Mm -hmm. wherever um we have to transfer it so and then the party will be notified of that or parties will be Mm -hmm. notified of that if that happens
0: I'm talking with Magistrate Michael Douglas and Rosie Pepple of the Allen Superior Court about the process of obtaining a protective order. Perhaps for Rosie, perhaps for Magistrate Douglas, what is the difference between a no-contact order and a protective order? A no-contact order
2: is when an arrest of a battery has been done on, a, on the responding party and the state of Indiana will file a no-contact order on behalf of the victim in that case. The victim normally has to work with the prosecuting attorney's office regarding that case.
0: And Rosie, again for you, most protective order requests are filed without the help of an attorney. The application is lengthy, requires a lot of information. People can find the process intimidating, but we have a unique resource in Allen County in you, our protective order specialist, Judge Jennifer DeGroote. Back when we launched this, called it a true customer service innovation for the court. What kinds of assistance can you give to somebody coming in to seek a protective order?
2: When the petitioners come in, they're often hurt, upset, anxious, confused, all in all not ready to fill out a petition that takes approximately 20 to 30 minutes to complete. I will go over the petition prior to initiation process, making sure they have all the pertinent information required to obtain a protective order. If they don't have a name or address, I can... Use a police report number if they have one in order to get the name, if they have a Jane or a John Doe, or an address in order to serve. If they also need an interpreter, I can provide them with the numbers for agencies, the resources for those places that can help with assistance regarding helping them with the filing process, or if they need an interpreter. Either way, I can provide a lot of those numbers. Also, with assistance of legal information for like family law, I can give them numbers for an attorney for like a family, a referral to get that number so
0: that they can contact them regarding those questions. You know, I mentioned Mm -hmm. in the question that the process can be long and somewhat intimidating. Are people pretty relieved when they come down and find you here and able to help?
2: Yeah, they they are because I think I can, you know, pretty much narrow down the process to where they don't find it so intimidating Mm -hmm. and scary. I mean, that's the first words that come out of their mouth is this is intimidating. This is scary. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to expect. So I, you know, walk them through it and they have a better idea of how
0: it works. How do people get on your schedule to get help?
2: They can either call the number to schedule an appointment or an email. They can email the request if they have time to come in. And that way it gives more time for me and the petitioner to go over their petition and, you know, to make sure it's completed accurately and not rushed or with a lot of inaccurate information.
1: And if I can just piggyback on what Rosie's talking about here, a couple tips and she's really good about helping individuals in these scenarios. Number one, people sometimes need help filling out the paperwork itself and they have questions and that's what Rosie is, is here for and does a great job and one of the things that she helps individuals with is to kind of explain in further detail what's actually happened to them. A lot of times people will come in and say, I've been threatened. From the judicial officer standpoint, when I read that, the word threatened can mean a whole host of Mm -hmm. things. It can mean your life's been threatened. It can mean that you've been threatened to be taken to court for a personal property issue or for a child support issue or child custody. Uh, so the word threatened can mean a whole host of things, and, and that's what Rosie's here for too, is to help with that. Uh, okay, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, as an example, what do you mean by threatened? And, and so that helps the process not only for them, but also for the judicial officer making that determination of whether or not domestic or family violence has occurred, stalking, et cetera. The other thing that Rosie pointed out is we have access to certain databases for she mentioned addresses and things like that there is a misconception that i just wanted to highlight (laughs) where a lot of people come in and they're requesting for a protective order and they give rosie or they give the court here's my police control number and they say just look up the police report i shouldn't have to write anything down or they'll write see police report (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we see a lot of that on more of the online filing mm-hmm. um, and those petitions are denied because the court is not an investigative body so we do not look at police reports we don't pull up police reports we don't have
2: access we to don't it. have
1: access to pull up police reports other than trying to find an address
0: right um
1: right. but other than that so those are just some tips that and some further explanation on on just those two things because we see those things quite often
0: mm-hmm. Rosie, what kinds of information should people have in hand or readily available when they come in to file a protective order?
2: The petitioners need to have the name and address of where to serve, the incidents regarding the allegations they are filing against the respondent with dates and location. Also the relationship to the petitioner helps determine if this is a domestic or non-domestic
0: case. I'm talking to Magistrate Michael Douglas and Rosie Peppel of the Allen Superior Court about the process of filing for and obtaining a protective order here in Allen County. Now, Magistrate Douglas, how long does a protective order last? Are they ever permanent? That's a great question.
1: They can be permanent in a very limited situation. Generally speaking, if if a protective order is granted at the emergency stage, so if if you were to come in today and get a protective order against someone and, and you walk out with your protective order in hand, your ex parte or an emergency protective order, it will say on your order two years from the date that the court granted your request. Now, that can change ultimately if there's a hearing later down the road and the court can modify that later. But generally speaking, an ex parte is originally granted for uh, for two years. Fast forward, if we have what's called a final protective order trial or hearing and the court hears from both sides, the court determines that the protective order is warranted and is allowed and grants the request for a protective order, the court can go from one day, one week, one month, one year all the way up to two, and very limited certain situations longer than that. But, John, there's a new law that was passed recently where if the petitioner, that's the person requesting the protective order, if the emergency order or if there's a final protective order that was granted because the respondent or the person that the petitioner is saying I need protected from is named in the order and, and is a sex or violent offender under a different definition in the law and is required to register as a lifetime sex or violent offender under Indiana law and that the petitioner was the victim of that particular criminal offense that the court can order that that protective order be effective indefinitely unless the court orders otherwise Mm -hmm. so that's right now in the current state of indiana law that's the the only limited circumstances that a that a protective order can be permanent or indefinite
0: does the petitioner the person requesting the protective order need to do anything over time to keep that protective order in place
2: Yes. If they feel that they want to extend a protective order because they feel it still needs to be in place, they can always request a request for an extension. Um, They have to file that with the clerk's office. Basically, they're kind of refilling out the petition, but it's kind of a different form. And then that will be taken into the clerk and they will set it for hearing. And then once it goes to hearing, they'll determine if that stays in effect or if it's dismissed altogether.
1: And to jump into that answer a little bit, John, the reason for for that is that there has to be legally there has to be additional allegations additional things that the respondent has alleged to have done to the petitioner in order for that protective order to be extended past the say 2 year time frame. Mm-hmm. It's not enough for a petitioner to come in and say, well, I've had protection for two years. I want it extended out for another two years because I'm afraid of what that person might do if the protective order expires. That additional request for the two years, there has to be new allegations, new incidences that the court has to hear evidence on.
0: Now, Rosie, one of the things you do in your role is let people know about other resources available here in the community for victims of domestic violence and other circumstances that might bring people to court for a protective order. What other resources are there in the community that you would like people to be aware of if they ever find themselves in circumstances that might justify filing for a protective order?
2: Something that I think a lot of people don't know, we as the court, we will issue the order for the order for protection. But once it comes down to someone violating that protective order, they often come back to us stating, what do we need? What do I do? That actually needs to be something that goes through the either the prosecuting attorney's office for non-domestic situation or victim's assistance for domestic situation. But they would actually either open a case or follow through with whatever the person is doing as far as violating that order that is in effect, but they do need to have personal service on that. If they do not, they will not continue their prosecution. But that is something that you actually need to go through on the prosecution side to find out what exactly is needed to further investigate or issue a warrant off of that, Then violating their protective order.
0: Important reminder that you are a technical assistance resource help people get through the application process and and get their request into court? Correct. Mm -hmm. Now, Magistrate Douglas, that brings up a good question. What does happen if somebody's accused of violating a protective order?
1: If the petitioner believes that the respondent or the person that they're protected from does something, whether it be directly, indirectly, they communicate with them in person, through social media or otherwise, if they believe that that's happened, what they do is they contact the police, and they explain to the police what happened. And then at that point, the police then decide whether or not the respondent should be arrested. And if they are arrested, then it starts out as a class A misdemeanor, what's called invasion of privacy. And then as Rosie pointed out, then the case, they're charged with that crime by the Allen County prosecuting Attorney's Office. And then that becomes a criminal matter and it would go down that criminal track as it relates to whether or not that person did in fact violate the protective order or not.
0: Well, this has been a tremendous discussion, lots of information that I think a lot of people in the community will benefit from. Magistrate Douglas, Rosie Peppel, thank you for your time. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having us, John. Thank you,
0: John. I'm John Magali, and this has been In Session, an inside look at the Allen County, Indiana courts. You can get more information on this and other topics at allensuperiorcourt.us. Thanks for listening. The next episode's coming right up.